This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to our scripture text this morning from Luke chapter 22. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Luke 22, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priest and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you, and uh, we're going to look at our text, Luke 22, 1 through 13. Uh, I was told this morning, I think, 17 times, it better be good. Um... (laughs) Because all the group that's come back is really tired, and uh, they, can just, they can just use this as an opportunity to catch up on a little rest. Luke 22, uh, let, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be underneath the authority of your word. We ask, God, that you would speak to us. We're reminded often and again this week that all flesh is as grass. And the flower withers, and the grass fades, but it's the word of the Lord that endures forever. And so we come now to the, the word of the Lord, and, and you are the Lord over the word, and so we ask that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would allow our time together to truly change us, Give us a greater adoration for who you are and what you've done. And just ask that uh, there would be transformation that takes place in our lives as a result of gathering together under the authority of your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. As mentioned earlier, Palm Sunday uh, is a day in which uh, we are supposed to feel a little tension. Uh, It's... Not necessarily a passage today that, uh, 
It's not the triumphal entry. It's not the, the Palm Sunday passage. We've, we've walked through that. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now. And it's helped to prepare us then uh, for this feeling of tension. Uh, it, it does come, uh, as we walk through this text and consider a few points, uh, it comes in a week where we certainly would feel tension. Um, I can't help but think back to Monday and uh, what took place uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and how we saw evil personified uh, in another shooting uh, at a Christian school this time. And uh, we are supposed to consider uh, that in light of or consider what goes on in our world and and always go to the Scriptures. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said we really should read our Bibles with the newspaper, remember those, um, right next to it and consider what we're reading in one and in the other and, rec- and be able to make uh, connections. And so here we are in a passage that has tension, a, passion that ha- a passage that has evil, and we're going to consider that a little bit as we walk through it. Notice just if you glance down at your Bible at the end of chapter 21, this is where we were last time, notice the very last line in the chapter says this, uh, and early in the morning... All the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That's, that's one thought. That's one picture we're supposed to get. And then we open to the next chapter, our text this morning, and we find that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put him to death. What a contrast. And that has been happening all throughout the gospel. Uh, we've seen it, but it's, it's now coming to a climax uh, it reminds me of an old hymn uh, that I think we have the lyrics for us in this first, uh, the first verse that says, Sometimes they crowd his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to the king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. You see, that that's helping us to catch a little bit of this tension. And we're going to see that even more as we walk through it. That's running through the gospel. And the tension here in this chapter kind of, it brings these two ideas to light for us. The first is that people are plotting how to do away with Jesus. And then simultaneously, Jesus continues to tell everyone that he must suffer and die. Interesting. They're, they're bloodthirsty, and here he is saying, nobody can even keep me from the cross. And it's amazing, isn't it, how God uses all of that. Uh, his purposes will not be thwarted, and yet we see throughout man's evil and his, his, his responsibility in the crucifixion of Christ. I want us to walk through this text this morning with these three points in mind. I think they're going to be in front of you. Give them to you now um, so that in case later I don't mention it clearly. Um, I've also had people say, you know, your sermons have no point. And so I say, well, I'm going to make sure I have some points in it then. So here we go. Number one, the cowardly, deceitful, and evil intent of the opposition. And that's, that's one thing we're made to see in this text. The cowardly, deceitful, and evil tend, intent of the opposition. Secondly, along with that, the fearless, sincere, and good resolve 
of our Savior. And then finally, we'll look at or think about the almighty, loving, and sovereign care of our God. Let's, let's first think about this cowardly, deceitful, and evil intent of the opposition. This passage is reminding us that groups often come together for the wrong reasons. And we see it in our day. There are people who are linking together, but not for good. And here, groups come together in the scriptures, not necessarily because they have the same real goals, but because they can line up with what they are opposed to. And there's never more evident than in the opposition to Christ. We might think that they, be, they make very strange bedfellows, that they come together simply because of their hatred. We should understand this just simply in sports. How often does somebody say, my favorite team uh, is the Browns, but my second favorite is anybody who's playing the Steelers, right? Now that hits a lot more at home where I'm from. I don't know who the Lions' you know, enemies are. I can't figure that out yet. I guess it's Aaron Rodgers. I don't know. And, but, but people come together simply because of what they are against. Uh, I, I turned to an old Bible this week that was given to me by, by a shut-in who, when I walked into her home, she just said, I have this old Bible. I, would you like it? I sure, I'll take it. Maybe there's somebody. And, but it's, you know, it's one of those old family Bibles that you can barely pick up and move. And if you move it, it all falls apart. It's in my office. And as I turn through it, there's actually pictures in it, which we typically don't see too often. And in this when you come to Luke 23, right by the verse that says the reconciliation of Herod and Pilate, uh, that, that they became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And so the picture has Herod and Pilate shaking hands. And you see behind them the soldiers taking Jesus away. Our text puts before us this kind of opposition. We're told that the chief priests and scribes here seek to put him to death, which is nothing new. We've seen this throughout. If you've been following along in, in the Gospel of Luke through week after week, these sermons have shown us how they were, are against Christ and trying to deceive him and trick him uh, in order that they might do something with him. But the only thing that has kept them from doing that is because of their fear of the people. Notice in our, in our text here, uh, Luke chapter 4. I think we have these just kind of right in front of us here on the screen. Luke chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Move along to Luke chapter 13. We hear it again in verse 31. At, the, at this very hour, the Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. In Luke 19, 47 and 48, we find it again. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And one more time, Luke chapter 20 and verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Just notice 
that in verse 2 of our text, it does not say that they were trying to figure out whether they should do away with him. They're just trying to figure out how. The verdict is already in. It's one of the saddest things as you turn in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 23, you see, you see it just continue to proceed that he's, he, they're, fine, they're going to deal with him, they're going to do away with him, yet all the while, everybody that interacts with him recognizes that this man is innocent. There's no guilt. There's no real reason to do what we are going to do, but we're still going to do it. Continuing uh, in that hymn, it goes like this in the next verse. Why, what has my Lord done to cause this rage and spite? He made the lame to run and gave the blind their sight. What injuries, yet these are why the Lord Most High so cruelly dies. The next verse, with angry shouts they have, my dear Lord done away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet willingly he bears the shame that through his name all might be free. All the Bible tells us that men did not want God reigning over them. We could go all the way back to the very beginning where Satan began to do his work, planting seeds into the heart of man, questioning God's goodness, ultimately striving to get man to rebel against God. Psalm 2 says it in this way, that they set themselves. They set themselves against God's anointed. They wanted to burst the bonds and cast away the cords. In essence, saying what we see in the Gospels, we will not have this man reign over us. Psalm 2 says that the nations rage, and boy, do they ever. And so, in our text, we're reminded of this conspiracy, of this council. Uh, in the King James Version, it uses the word commune, that they communed together, that they covenanted together. I mean, that's, that's spiritual religious language that we use hopefully around good purposes to covenant and to commune together around Christ. So does the opposition. Who's responsible for the death of Christ? Well, our text tells us that the chief priests and scribes in verse 2. In verse 3, then we're told that Judas had a part in this, but we also are told that behind the scenes is Satan doing his, his work, working in all of this, and we recognize that from the very beginning, Satan's been at work. But let's just remind ourselves that all of those are secondary causes. When we think about the death of Christ, the primary plan and purpose was not the evil one, but God himself. Which takes us to our second point, that while we think about the cowardly, deceitful, and, and evil intents of the, of the opposition, we're also reminded here of the fearless, sincere, and good resolve of the Savior. This is the, this is the primary cause of the death of Christ. Why did he have to die? Ultimately, not because evil had its way, but because nothing would thwart 
Christ and his purposes to fulfill to bring many sons to glory. That it was a joy that was set before him, that it was because of that joy that he endured the cross, despising the shame. That he was willing to, we saw it in Luke chapter four. Remember when the evil one comes and, and begins to tempt Jesus. He's not, he's not tempting him to go to the cross. He's tempting him to keep him from the cross. And Jesus was very aware of this. And he, he, he denounces all of his threats. And then we're told, the gospel tells us that Satan went away and decided that he'll try to return at a more opportune time. That maybe there's another way that I can kind of work my way in and tempt him. Remember when Peter spoke words that Jesus didn't agree with? He actually turned to Peter himself and said, get behind me, Satan, because you're trying to stop me from going to the cross. I must go. I must suffer. Hear it in his words. Uh, We've walked through these, so let's just remind ourselves. Luke chapter 9, here's Jesus reminding those who will listen of why he came. Luke 9, 51 through 52. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Hear it again in Luke 17, verse 25. He says this, speaking of himself, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. One more time, Luke chapter 18, 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise in our text we see his resolve in his instructions to the disciples to go and prepare the passover all of this deceitfulness is all around him He feels it, he knows it. And yet all he's focused on is, men, let's continue on. Go, prepare the Passover. It's interesting, isn't it, that these first first two points, uh, we we could be talking about the shooting this week and saying the same thing. The cowardly, evil, intense, And yet the second point reminds us of the the sincere and fearless resolve. This week when evil was personified and walked into that school, we're thankful that there were some who had this good, sincere, and fearless resolve. One was the schoolmaster who ran to to say, if you're going to take out anybody, it's going to be me. And she, she died. Or the police officers who come quickly and just work their way through it, not, not avoiding gunfire, but going towards where the gunfire is to take out evil. And it's in those moments that we say, we, we quote Jesus when he said, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. When we hear of that kind of courage and resolve, we're reminded of our Savior. That's why people like that are to be honored. We see it here in Christ's resolve. 
Maybe, maybe best explained by the old Puritan who tried to explain the covenant of redemption. You remember this, where, where he said, uh, he, he, he draws up kind of a picture of the father and the son having a discussion. And so the father turns to the son and he says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now they lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And then Christ returns and says, Oh, my Father, such is my love, my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills, that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there would be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father turns to the Son and says, "But, but my Son, if you undertake it, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abasements. If I spare them, I cannot spare you. And the son says, Father, let it be so. Charge it all on me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing for me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. His resolve here is seen in his instructions and his preparation for the Passover. Remember that he's using the Passover here to point his disciples back, back to an event in history to help them understand what it is he's about to do at the cross. And it's at this moment then that he institutes what we celebrate regularly, the Lord's Supper. It's in the midst of betrayal and conspiracy that he's, that he's ever looking out for the souls of those whom he loves. Here he is warning them and directing them and comforting them by feasting with them. And ultimately, he's going to give his own life that they might have something for their souls to feast on. We're supposed to think of the Passover and what it represents when we read this text. The Passover pointing us back to that celebration of of God's exodus of his people through the last of the 10 plagues when every firstborn Egyptian was killed. Remember that God had provided an escape for the Israelites through the Passover. They were given instructions. They were told as as a song by Carolyn Cobb says it this way, take the lamb, take the blood, paint it on our doorways. At night, Death will come, but pass us by. This this act was supposed to remind them this this is God's great way of salvation. God was teaching them then and us still that this great principle that God saves his people by substitution. Understand that that night in every house, someone died. 
either the son or the lamb. Someone had to die. But it was through the sacrifice of another, the one that God had commanded and God provided. This is where his cross becomes our doorway. This is how we are given access to God and forgiveness of sin. Not by anything that we've done, but all completely because of what Christ has done through the, the substitute, which is the, the, the perfect Lamb of God and his sacrifice. That's why Christ kept going around saying, I must suffer. I have to go to the cross. There's, there's no option here. There's no other way. Sometimes you hear, well, we, we read it in the scriptures, right? You, you read the mock, those that were mocking him near the cross saying, if you're really the son of God, then come down. If you're really the son of God, save yourself. Not knowing that by saying that, there was no way that Christ could save himself and us. It was one or the other. By asking him to save himself, you're, you're asking to not save us. No, there's only one way. Christ to give of himself completely and fully for our sins. I love the way Sproul says it. Kind of like the way anything Sproul says. It's not fair. So good. Here's the quote by Sproul. He says, The atonement offered in obedience by Christ is a perfect sacrifice that appeases the wrath of the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, there is still condemnation awaiting those who are not in Christ. Either the penalty of our sin is paid in the body of Christ, or you will bear the penalty of your sin in your own body. Either you will receive God's mercy through Christ, or you will receive God's justice. The resolve of our Savior to go to the cross, to suffer in our place, which also points us then to this final point, the almighty, loving, and sovereign care of our God. Here I just want to highlight God's sovereign care of the details. In this passage, it comes in the instructions that Jesus gives to Peter and John as he sends them to go and prepare the Passover meal for them to eat. They, he tells them, Go ahead, go in front, go before us and prepare. And the natural question comes, well, where? How are we supposed to do this? Well, go to the city and you'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Now, every time I read this, I can't help but think of when I was a youth pastor in West Virginia. And uh, in my first few days there, I'm getting ready to try to go out and visit young people that, you know, are on my list. I'm trying to learn these kids and these families. And so I'm asking the assistant pastor, because I don't know anywhere around here, like, I need directions. Remember, this is before GPS. Anybody remember those days? And so for one particular home, 
I'm asking for directions. And he says, well, that's a little tricky one, but here's what you're going to do. When you go down the road, you're going to see a white fence. When you see a white fence, turn right. Okay, so I'm looking for a white fence. Then as you go further down the road, there's going to be a cow. When you see a cow, turn left. Anybody see a problem with that? (laughs) What if the cow isn't there? Oh, he'll be there. Don't you worry. Okay. Just glad he didn't ask me to follow the cow into the house like Jesus tells the men here. It's it's it's, It's interesting to read these kind of instructions, right? Say, go into a town, find a man carrying a jar... We understand that according to history, that would have been a rare thing, that it was typically women who were carrying the jars. Nothing's changed. And in that day, here, go find this man. And say, well, this is awfully strange. It just once again shows us the sovereignty of God over all the details. Later at the end of the text, we're told that the disciples found it just as he had told them. I don't know about you, but those are the kind of lines I love to underline. Just as he told them. Of course it was. God is sovereign over all the practical, physical details. From beginning to end, he rules and he overrules. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism says it when it speaks of providence. Listen to this definition. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them. Listen to this. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health, sickness, prosperity, poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Which also then the Heidelberg goes on to say, actually previous to that says, he is your God and father because of Christ, Therefore, the Heidelberg says, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good, whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he's almighty God. And he desires to do this because he's a faithful father. All throughout, we are taught in Scripture that what God commands will come to pass. We're to see that in creation when he just speaks and it happens. We're to see that in salvation when he just speaks and men come alive. We're to see it in all the little details. I mean, this isn't the first time that he told the disciples something would be such, and it was. 
Remember, you know, maybe they're, they're getting these instructions. Go find a man carrying a jar, and they're going, this is weird. What if we get there and there is no man with a jar? And the other, and maybe it's, maybe it's John saying, there'll be a man with a jar. Don't you remember the colt? Don't you remember he told us to go into the, war, go into the city, find a colt, untie it, and if just so happens, somebody says, hey, what are you doing with that colt? Just tell them the master has need of it, and they'll say, go ahead. Remember that? Yeah, it'll be there. It'll be just as he said. Peter, you remember when he said, you'll betray me? I realize that that's still coming in our course of events. But it was just as he said. Remember when he said, I'll go and prepare a place for you and I'll come again? And I'll receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Remember at the tomb? When they come and find it empty. And what does the angel say? Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Of course. These are all to be like aha moments for the disciples and for us to say, aha, it makes sense now. Everything he said is being, has been or is being fulfilled. I don't know where you stand today with God's promises. Maybe you have doubts or questions, and that's okay. But I'm here to tell you that if you'll come to the Scriptures honestly, sincerely, willing to study and consider, no one has ever truly inquired and found the evidence for belief in Christ lacking. It's only when they're not really willing to investigate. This room is full of many believers who found Jesus to be who he said he was and know that he did what he said he would do. We found him to be true to his word, everything to be just as he said. And here's here's why that matters then. Number one, we're almost done, I promise. Number one for salvation, can I trust? Can I trust that this is enough? Understand that when they put that blood on the doorposts and then they sat and waited and the the death angel passed by and they heard cries, unbelievable cries that night. Understand that there were probably some who were doing everything they were told to do, but still sitting there going, oh God, I hope it's enough. Don't don't feel like just because sometimes you have questions, sometimes you have doubts, sometimes you wonder like, the good news is it's not based on how wonderful your faith is, but in the object of your faith. Christ is enough. It's just as he said it would be. 
You can rest in that. You can trust him. He's done it. It's finished. Secondly, not just for salvation, but for all the details of your life. That's the idea of the Heidelberg Catechism reminding us blade, leaf, sickness, health, everything. He's got it all under control. He's over it. Oh, there's a mystery in that because some of the things that come, that's why we're thankful that the Heidelberg reminds us that it's not just prosperity, but also when when there's poverty. It's not just when it's health, but it's also sickness. Remember it said that all the things that he sends me in this sad world. Referring back this week, we just saw something very sad happen in this world. I don't understand it. I wish I could explain it. I don't know why it had to happen. I don't know why God allowed it. We can have all those questions. But we can trust and rest that God is so sovereign even over the evil opposition because he's a good God and he's able and he's willing and he will use all of it for our good and his glory. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not afflicted. Believe me, I get it. When I hear of nine-year-olds being killed, I have a nine-year-old. I think I can't even imagine but I'll leave you with this. These are the words of the pastor of the church where the shooting happened and his nine-year-old daughter was killed. He says, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life again. That's, that's faith and trust in a sovereign God. And we have so much evidence that he's good and he rules. We can trust him for salvation. We can trust him for all the details of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God who rules and was and is resolved to bring salvation to your people. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, only you know where each one of us is at, the doubts and questions we have. Minister to us. Draw us near. Help us to respond even as the disciples did in obedience to do just what you've called us to do because you have done just as you said. So help us now to go walking in obedience, pleasing you with our lives, for you are worthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.